Welcome to Cascades Bible Church. Our text for this morning is, um, is 1 Corinthians chapter 16, and we're looking this morning at verses uh, 5 to 12. As we get to these latter chapters of this letter, which are obviously um, very different from the preceding chapters, um, this is one of those portions of Scripture that makes the expository preacher wish he could, like so many preachers nowadays, just hopscotch on to some other text that the Lord was, quote-unquote, leading him to preach that week. Uh, but alas, this is not how exposition works, consecutive exposition works. We confess that all Scripture is God-breathed and profitable, and that includes things like genealogies and greetings at the beginnings of books like this, and as well as uh, itineraries and also uh, incidental details, and it is really the latter that uh, the latter two that make up the bulk of chapter 16 here as we get into this, um, into this section. This chapter, this whole chapter is, is Paul's kind of final flurry of instructions and well wishes to those whom he is writing before he soldiers on in ministry to uh, the, the believers in Ephesus. And while Paul's travel plans may not contain the same soul-gripping truths that uh, some other portions of the letter uh, do, nevertheless, there is, I believe, something here for us to glean as we turn it over in our minds and, and, and look to the Spirit for his assistance. The opening four verses, which we looked at last Sunday, contain Paul's instruction, practical instruction, with respect to a collection they were to take for needy believers in Jerusalem. He was responding, and as he is throughout the back half of this letter, he is responding to uh, different questions or statements that they have communicated to him. They've written him, and now he's writing back with his uh, pastoral and apostolic instruction here. And they had asked him about this, this offering they were to collect to alleviate the suffering and the need of Jewish brothers and sisters in, uh, in Christ. And so Paul's instruction back to them, which he also given to other churches in the region of Galatia, was this. On the first day of each week, each one of you is to put aside and save as he may prosper so that no collections be made whenever it is that Paul was going to come to Corinth and visit with them. So we learned that a voluntary free will contribution was to be made, uh, not just as a one-off thing, but regularly on the first day of the week, which we said is the time when believers met for worship on Sundays. And there's a reason Paul instructed them to regularly give um, and set aside money week by week for the needs of the saints. And that is because he knew that if they didn't do that as a regular thing, if it wasn't a pattern of their worship, then and it wasn't planned and it wasn't purposeful, that covetousness would, would inevitably kind of creep in and consume those resources on themselves. And their fellow believers would be deprived of much needed aid. Paul understood, he understood our heart's vulnerability to turn inward, he understood our heart's um, proclivity to be selfish and to look to self-indulgence. But the gospel and its work in our hearts, it, it pleads with us to look outward. The gospel is an outward-looking thing in many ways, and, and it calls us to selflessness. It, it calls us to sacrifice for the benefit of others. This is a point that Paul even makes later on in, in 2 Corinthians as he urges them to follow through on the very same gift that he's instructing them about here. 
And he says in uh, 2 Corinthians 8, verses uh, 7 and verse 9, he says, See to it that you abound in this gracious work, this gracious work of, of receiving this collection and dispersing it. And he says, for, and this is the reason, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. So the reasoning that they could be generous, the fuel that fires our generosity as believers toward others is primarily Christ's generosity to us in giving us and bestowing on us all that we need for life and godliness. And, and of course, the most important thing that he's given us is he has purchased our eternal salvation. So if Christ has given us so much to us, how could we not give so much to him? And in Paul's instruction here, in this simple administrative procedure that he lays out in verses 1 to 4, he, he, he gives us a call to conquer covetousness, to conquer covetousness in our collection for the saints. The, the discipline of giving week by week is uh, the, the discipline of showing generosity, demonstrating mutuality and reciprocity in partnership with one another in the church and in our churches is an important guardrail to keep us from selfishness. It keeps us from covetousness that would otherwise consume and devour those resources on ourselves. And we saw five distinct truths from the scriptures that we traced out through different portions of the New Testament that were meant to help you and I win that victory over covetousness. And I encourage you to listen to that message if, um, if you would like to, you know, um, if you missed it and you would like to, to know what those things are. But from this, uh, these opening four verses, Paul turns his attention to future plans. He's looking outward and thinking what, what's going to happen for him and for uh, his co-laborers in the gospel, Timothy and this gentleman, Apollos. And uh, so he, he turns in verse 5 and he says, But I will come to you after I go through Macedonia, for I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries." Now, if Timothy comes, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work as I also am. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Now, you read that and you think, okay, where are we going with this? <laughs> where, where is this going? Well, um, there's a number of different truths we could bring to the foreground in these verses, but one thing that stands out most starkly, particularly in the original language as we work through it, is Paul's recognition that God is the sovereign determiner of their future plans, not them. God is the sovereign determiner of his and Timothy's and Apollos' future plans, not them individually. And you just, just read through it. You, you see how he speaks in these verses. He says, I will come to you. So there's a definitiveness there for I'm going through Macedonia. But he says, perhaps I may stay with you for even, uh, and he maybe even spend the winter. He says, and then you will send me out wherever I may go. 
He says, I do not wish to just see you in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. He says, but I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost, for this door of ministry has been opened to me. He says, now if Timothy comes, see to it that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he's doing the Lord's work. And if you drop down to verse 12, he says, um, I says, he says, I encouraged him greatly to come to you, but it was not his desire, but he will come whenever, really is what it says, he has opportunity. So there's a lot of uncertainty here. If there's one thing Paul understands, it is that God is the only sovereign, not him. And when I say God is sovereign, I mean that God is absolutely supreme. God has no, there is no higher authority that exists than the triune God. The one true and living God has a, has a predetermined plan and purpose for all things that happen in this universe. And he and he alone is the ultimate determiner of what happens. He determines when it happens. He determines where things happen. And he determines why they happen. God is the only sovereign. 1 Timothy 6, 4 Uh, 14 to 15, Paul exhorts Timothy to keep the faith, and he says to do this without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. Who is this he? He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords. And so what we see here is Paul acknowledging that God is the king above all kings. He is the Lord above all lords. He is the only perfectly blessed in himself, sovereign of everything. God is the ultimate sovereign of all that happens, and his will reigns supreme. God alone knows the future because, as God's people have confessed for centuries, he's decreed in himself from all eternity by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably, all things whatsoever come to pass." That is how God's people have summarized this teaching of God's sovereignty through the ages. And that is reflected in the way Paul thinks about here and speaks about his future plans and those of Timothy and Apollos. So in a way, just reading these verses, Paul exemplifies rather than explains the God-dependent planning that we learned about um, maybe a month and a half ago when we were uh, teaching through James 4, uh, 13 to 17. Remember, we had a kind of a one-off message that week talking about planning and providence. But what we learned there and what James says is that you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow, for you're just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead of saying you're going to go here and do this and do that, he says you ought to say if the Lord wills, we will live, also do this and do that. And so what I, what I want to do this morning, what, I, what I'm trying to do this, accomplish this morning, in a sense, is to reverse engineer Paul's words here. I want to see Paul exemplified as he speaks. He writes with an example of God-dependent planning. He doesn't really explain it, how it works. He just, he just sort of does it. Just like someone who, who's a gifted musician, they, they, it's hard for them to explain how they play the instrument. They just do it. And so that's what he's doing. He's, he's, he's speaking about his future plans. He's exemplifying God-dependent planning. But what I want to do this morning is go backwards. 
I want to explain God-dependent planning from Paul's example. Does that make sense? So that's what we're going to try and do. And we're going to, my goal is that as we go through this, we will better grasp God-dependent planning by taking apart Paul's disclosure about his future plans. That's kind of point one in our outline. Uh, as we take apart Timothy's, Paul's explanation of Timothy's future plans. That's part two in our outline. And as Paul takes, uh, as we take apart Apollos's uh, future plans as relayed by Paul. So, so that's really the, the, the way we're going to break this out. We see Paul's future plans in verses 5 to 9, Timothy's future plans in 10 to 11, and then Apollos' future plans in verse 12. So we want to begin by taking apart Paul's future plans in verses 5 to 9. And uh, we see uh, in verse 5, he says, "...but I will come to you after I go through Macedonia." For I'm going through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may send me on my way wherever I may go. For I do not wish to see you now just in passing, for I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord permits. But I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Paul has already alluded earlier in his letter that he had every intention of coming back to visit them in Corinth. Um, he saw that in chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. And even he said that even though some in their midst didn't think he'd actually show up. Uh, but he, he says he's coming. He, he alluded to the fact that he hoped to come. And here he says confidently, my plan is I will come to you after I travel through Macedonia. And this, this after in your translation here is, uh, is an indefinite when, whenever. Um, so you could say, I will come to you whenever I go through Macedonia. He doesn't know when he's going to be going through there. He doesn't know how long he's going to be there for sure. But it is his intention to move through that area, visit the churches, strengthen the brethren, and then to come to them for a season. He says, hopefully for a whole winter, for a longer season to visit with them. So he's telling them what he hopes to do, and this gives them at least a measure of visibility into where they fit into his itinerary. So while there's an air of definitiveness, this is what I'm planning to do, there's also a measure of uncertainty as Paul speaks about these things. There's an uncertainty. It's, is that because Paul is wishy-washy? Is that because Paul's word can't be trusted? Is that because his, his answer, as he says in 2 Corinthians, is, is yes and no at the same time? No, that's not it at all. What, what you see here and what you recognize is that he understands that his words are, are not ultimate. It's because he understands that God's sovereign will reigns supreme over his plans. He understood a, a number of things, and I just want to kind of give them to you in a rapid-fire uh, list here. Paul understood first that God's sovereign will is certain. God's sovereign will is certain. Um, he, he knew what Daniel said in Daniel 4, verse 35, where, where he says, All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he, God, does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, to God, what have you done? So, you know, the sinner who tries to defy God's plans and shake his hands and shake his fist at God has to recognize that God determines how many times he shakes his fist at God and whether or not he will shake his fist at God tomorrow. <laughs> That's the reality. God's will, God's sovereign will is certain. Paul also understood that God's sovereign will is detailed. His sovereign will is detailed. Isaiah 46, 
verses 9 to 11, Isaiah speaking for God says, Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, My purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure. And he shows us the detail of that in verse 11, calling the bird of a prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken. Truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it. Surely I will do it. So so we have to understand that God's sovereign will is not just concerned about big picture things or the the uh, the outline of things. God's sovereign will is 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 caught up in every little detail of all that happens. He controls germs and galaxies. He controls molecules in the Milky Way. Like it's all his. He details it all. Paul also understood thirdly that God's sovereign will is supreme. It is supreme. He is the supreme determiner of all things and yet does so in a way that does not nullify man's responsibility, or make God the author of sin. James 1, verse 13, James writes, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Understanding that God's will is supreme, um, it will often prompt us in our flesh to say, well, hey, that's not fair. What? That's not fair. Or to put it in the words of of Romans 9 and verse 19, why does he still find fault for who resists his will? And Paul answers that question. It's a legitimate question, but it's a question that Paul answers with another set of questions. He says, on the contrary, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Or or who are you? Can the thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honor, honorable use and another for common use? The obvious answer is, of course he does. As the creator, he does whatever he pleases. I like to think of the example uh, uh, in terms of, of man's responsibility and sin and God's um, kind of obligation to do or not do anything. You think about the relationship between the sun, a sun, a star, and a planet, right? Our, our earth is so many miles from the sun. If you take the sun away, this planet turns into a giant frozen rock, right? It just die, It's just dead. Uh, if the sun moves away, then the planet dies. So the question is, is the sun responsible for killing the planet? Not really. I mean, in a sense, yes, indirectly, but not in and of itself, the sun is responsible that there's now a frigid condition, but it's not the cause of it becoming a frigid wasteland that's consistent with its own nature. Like, that's what it does. And the sun, and, and so that kind of helps us think about that in the same way you and I, we have real agency to, to make choices in this life in accordance with our desires. No one's keeping you from doing, getting, you can get up and walk out and you can sit down, you can do anything you want. But if God chooses to show grace and mercy to some and leave others to their rebellion and sin and to, and to reap what they have sown, well, that doesn't put God at fault in any way, shape, or form. So God's, God's will is supreme. Fourth, God also under, uh, Paul understood that God's sovereign will is perfect. It is without defect. The Lord is good, Psalm 145, verse 9 says, He is good to all, and His mercies are over all His works. Or verse 17 of that same 
psalm. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and kind in all his deeds. All that God does is right and good. As Psalm 119 says, you are good and you do. God is good and he does good. This is who he is. His will is perfect. He are off, everything he does, he does in accordance with his nature, which is righteous and holy. And fifthly, Paul understood that God's sovereign will, among other things, is hidden. God's sovereign will is hidden. As Moses was writing to the people on the plains of Moab as they're ready to go into the promised land, he says in Deuteronomy 29 and verse 29, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. But the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. See, there is a will of God that has been revealed to us. Uh, theologians call that his will of command or his moral will. It's, it's in the pages of Scripture. Um, but the details of his secret will, or as theologians like to call it, his will of decree for our future, that is not contained in the Bible. It is not contained in the Bible. Those things are, are, he says, the secret things that belong to the Lord, and they are hidden. God does not disclose his will of decree until it happens, until we see it unfold. History books are God's sovereign will, his will of decree as it relates to all things in the past. Do you want to know what what God's sovereign will is for for you next Wednesday? You got to wait till next Thursday. (laughs) You won't know that until it has come or gone. Only God knows what will happen in advance, and he is not sharing that information with us. The, the only exceptions are the, the prophetic word in Scripture, which speaks about the future, those things would have, which have yet to be fulfilled. And we know the big picture, ultimate destiny of where human history is going we know we know those things from the word of god but but the details and the timing and the specifics of all those things those are not made clear to us and they're certainly not made clear to us on an individual level the realities of god's will that it is certain that it is detailed that it is that is that it is supreme that it is perfect that it is hidden those realities shape the whole this whole matter of god dependent planning okay so God not only doesn't tell us the what of his to, what is to come, he also doesn't tell us oftentimes the why. And we should not, indeed we cannot, read ahead to try and decipher what God's will of decree for our lives is or what it will be. We shouldn't try and do that. God has not planted circumstantial clues everywhere like some kind of cosmic puzzle that we must unravel and solve in order to figure out his sovereign will for our individual lives. We're not commanded in Scripture to read, if you will, providence as a means of determining direction for our lives. I'll often hear, and and I've done this myself, say, the Lord led me to do such and such. Go here, do this, take this job, go there. But when you ask the details about this quote-unquote leading, People will often list a series of circumstances that supposedly uh, tip them off to the way uh, God willed them to go. And, but that's just not how it works. God is not whispering hints into our hearts and lives through dreams or visions or impressions or uh, the quote-unquote open doors or 
inner peace or liver shivers or fleeces or any other mystical means. This is not how God communicates with us about the future. Nothing in the scriptures authorizes interpreting our circumstances in these ways when speaking about or planning for the future. When we take this approach, when we take that approach of, of leaning into mystical, subjective interpretations and, and, and you know, Easter, finding the kind of a, the, the Easter eggs or breadcrumbs that God's left in our, our circumstances, when we do that, we can interpret our circumstances to mean whatever we want. If you don't believe me that this can happen, we see an example of this even in the scriptures. Look with me at Acts 28 for just a moment. Remember, at the end of this uh, history, early history of the church, Paul is shipwrecked, and they land on this island of Malta, and the people who live there showed them extraordinary kindness, Luke writes, for because of the rain that had, that had set in the storm that had caused them to shipwreck, and because of the cold, they kindled a fire and received us all, verse 3. But when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, a viper came out because of the heat and fastened itself on his hand. And when the natives saw the creature hanging from his hand, they began to say to one another, No, undoubtedly, this man is a murderer. Though he has been saved from the sea, justice has not allowed him to live. So they, they see this um, circumstantial uh, situation where Paul is gathering sticks and all of a sudden snake comes out, bites his hand, latches on. They think, oh, you know, they read, God must be punishing him. He must be a murderer. That's why he's been bitten by this snake. He didn't drown in the ocean, so now God's going to get him. However, verse 5, he shook the creature off into the fire and suffered no harm. And verse 6, but they were expecting that he was about to swell up or suddenly fall down dead. But after they had waited a long time and had seen nothing unusual happen to Paul, they changed their minds and began to say he was a god, right? So, so they look at their circumstances. This happens. Oh, he's a murderer. That God's judging him. Oh, well, he didn't die. No, he's a god. You know, all of a sudden, they're just they're reading their circumstances to mean whatever they want them to mean. You see it also in John chapter 9. As uh, Jesus is preaching and teaching, beginning of John 9, as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So there was this assumption that he must have, circumstances must have been, you know, either he did something really bad and God judged him or his parents did, and now, now he was suffering because of their sin. Uh, they just read into their circumstances. And what does Jesus say in verse 3? He says, it was neither that, this man sinned, nor his parents but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And then he healed him, right? So, so again, their circumstances were kind of shaped. They were reading their circumstances and drawing false conclusions, wrong conclusions. They were assuming what their minds had already kind of decided were the issue. The worst offenders years ago, before we uh, came here, we were involved with singles ministry and larger church and uh, and then even in Florida for a little while, the worst offenders are those who are smitten with romantic interest when it comes to reading providence and circumstances. You know, oh, what is the chances that we would sit together at this and that we would reach for the same cup and our hands would touch, you know? 
this must be, you know, God must want us to get married, you know. And those circumstantial clues are taken as some kind of affirmation that God is blessing their relationship. Um, he may be, but that's, but that's not for us to figure out. You can make those and make your circumstances mean whatever they want. This is not how God intends for us to think about or speak about the future. Well, then how are we to think about our circumstances in light of God's sovereignty and our planning for the future? First, God's sovereignty doesn't exclude the need for planning. Okay, we just need to make that clear. God is big on planning, <laughs> big on planning, though it requires submission to his will. So God's sovereignty doesn't exclude the need for planning, but it requires a submission to his will. In Proverbs chapter 21 and verse 5, uh, Solomon writes, he says, uh, the plans of the diligent lead surely to advantage, profit. So there is, um, there is a benefit to planning in terms of opportunity uh, being secured. And everyone who is hasty, he says, comes surely to poverty. But at the same time that we are to plan, we have to understand that we are not the sovereign and that God is. And we saw this in equipping hour, the plans of the heart, Psalm, uh, Proverbs 16, verse 1, the plans of the heart belong to man. That's our part. But the answer of the tongue, what actually happens is from the Lord. Or later on in verse 9, the mind of man plans his ways, but the Lord directs his steps. So, you know, planning and sovereignty are not um, in opposition to one another. They work together. We plan, but you see, and you see Paul doing this in, in our text. He, he is acknowledging God's will is supreme in his future, in his future plans. He says, you know, in verse, um, uh, verse 6, perhaps I will stay with you. Or uh, later on, he says, I will come and stay with you for a season if the Lord permits. Right? So, so failure or an inability to accomplish something doesn't mean disapproval by God. It doesn't even mean sin, per se. And at the same time, success or the ability to do something doesn't mean God's approval and blessing. Because if you look back at Romans, Paul tried many times to come to the church at Rome. In verse 13, he says, um, I, I do not want you to be unaware. I want you to know that often I had planned to come to you and have been prevented so far, and have been prevent, prevented so far, so that I may obtain some fruit among you. Um, hindrance didn't mean it was wrong for Paul to go. It just wasn't the time. Uh, David Remember, David says, I'm going to build you a permanent dwelling place. He was going to build a temple. And God said, no, no, you're not. <laughs> not you. You're a man of blood. My house will be built uh, not by force, but by peace. And so Solomon was the one that ended up building the temple. But his motivation is commended in 1 Kings. So again, hindrance wasn't wrong. It just meant it wasn't the right time. So planning is necessary. Plan As we go through life, planning is good. And at the same time, we must submit our plans to God's will. So planning and, and submission are kind of go hand in glove. Second, circumstances define the context of a decision and must be weighed by wisdom, not interpreted to discover God's will. Circumstances then define the context of a decision for us. And they must be weighed, they must be evaluated by wisdom, not interpreted 
right? So your circumstances don't lead or give hints about God's will of decree, and it also doesn't give, um, it doesn't lead you to understand his moral will. His sovereign will, we said, his, his will of decree is hidden. His moral will is contained in the scriptures. All of it's there for us to, to discern. We, so circumstances don't, they don't teach us that. So what role do our circumstances play? They, they frame the context in which we make decisions. They frame the context in which we presently live. And so our goal isn't to uncover the hidden divine messages in our circumstances, but rather to judge the wisdom of a course of action in light of our situation. We are to judge the wisdom of a course of action in light of our current situation. And we see Paul doing this, for example, in Philemon, as he writes to Onesimus, and he's, uh, yeah, excuse me, he's writing to Philemon about Onesimus, and he, he encourages him to uh, welcome him back and receive him back. And he says, for perhaps he was for this reason separated from you for a little while that you would have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So Paul's saying, you know, he's, he's saying, listen, as we think about your circumstances, th- this could be what's going on, but, but they help us with, uh, with wisdom to frame out our context. Or Esther 4 and verse 14. Esther 4 and verse 14, where um, Esther finds herself in the presence of the king, in the presence of the king, and he says, um, he says, for if you remain silent this time, this is Mordecai talking to Esther, if you remain silent, Remember, the Jews were under persecution. He says, uh, if you remain silent this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. He says, but who knows? Who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this? So again, it's evaluating their circumstances by wisdom. By wisdom. Only God knows what the future holds, and we don't need to figure it all out before we make decisions. An example, I guess a practical example, would be like a, a student who uh, is trying to decide where to go to college. Right? And they send out all their applications, and the, maybe the first one that comes back, maybe they're really a brilliant student, and they get accepted to some really expensive private Ivy League school that costs like hundred grand a year or whatever they charge now. And they say, well, it's the first one that came back, but you get no scholarship money. None. But then this other one that comes back, you know, covers your, it's a full ride. And you say, well, I don't have the money to go to wherever, Ivy League school, but it's the first one that came back. So God must want me to go there, take on all this debt and do all this stuff. I would say, no, no, probably not. (laughs) The the context of your circumstances would say, um, you don't enroll here where you have no support and you don't have any money when you can go over here and get a pretty much a comparable education and have it all paid for. That's not wise for you to take on debt. It's not wise for you to do this. And so you have to evaluate your circumstances in terms of God's wisdom. God calls us to be good stewards of our resources. And there's many principles that we can draw from the scriptures to help us make a a wise decision. Our circumstances then don't lead us. They they frame out the context in which we make wise decisions. Thirdly, 
open doors, open doors, I'm using that as a quotation because it's a, it's a phrase we like to use, are not divine commands, but God-given opportunities to be evaluated by wisdom. Open doors are not divine commands, but they are given, uh, God-given opportunities to be evaluated by wisdom. In Scripture, um, we see this term used, this metaphor of the open door, relates to, in the Scriptures, uh, opportunities for gospel ministry most of the time. So if we're going to be strict in our interpretation of it, that's usually how it's connect, what it's connected to. And we see Paul use that kind of terminology here in verses 8 and 9. He says, I will remain in Ephesus until Pentecost. Here's the reason. For a wide door or an open door for effective service has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. See, Paul discerned a spiritual opportunity to preach the gospel in Ephesus. He planned to stay, not because God was commanding him with an open door, He stayed because it was spiritually advantageous and wise for him to do so. That's why he was there, and that's why he chose to remain there. The opposition, it should be noted, wasn't communicating to him to move on to greener pastures. Neither the open door nor the opposition were kind of... uh, uh, they, They were not like subtle divine commands hiding in disguise for him to figure out. Paul was simply redeeming his time. And in fact, we see an example of Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, in which God gave him an open door for gospel ministry, and he explicitly chose not to take it. You look at 2 Corinthians 2 for a second in verse 12. He says, Now when I came to Troas for the gospel of Christ, and when a door was opened for me in the Lord, he says, I had no rest in my spirit. Not finding Titus my brother, but taking my leave of them, I went on to Macedonia. So so Paul was so concerned about the situation in Corinth that he left Troas to check with Titus in Macedonia to find out if the Corinthian church had responded rightly to his harsh letter in which he had confronted them and, and corrected them. This letter that they received between our 1 Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. It's not in the scriptures. It's not an inspired letter. Paul was so concerned about that that he stopped what he was doing and he evaluated the opportunity and he deemed it wise to, to deal with an, a trouble in an existing church in Corinth rather than start some new work in Troas, even though he says a wide door for effective ministry had been opened to him. So this metaphor of an open door, again, refers to an opportunity for effective ministry. It is obviously God's sovereignty that directs those things because he works all things after his own will. But the open door, the open door, quote unquote, must be evaluated as, a part, as part of a wise um, and resourceful living for God. So open doors can be appropriate to bypass if something greater or more pressing is in front of you. And on the flip side, closed doors don't mean give up, okay? Sometimes it means you pray, you plan, and you try again later, which is what Paul said he did with his plans to travel to Rome. He says, I had many times tried to come. I was prevented. And Paul didn't say, well, I'm done with you guys. No, he says, I'll figure this out. I'll come when I have a chance. And eventually, um, 
Church history says that he did. So as Paul pens these words, it is clear about his plans. He, he had a plan, but he recognized that those plans were made in submission to God's sovereign will. The circumstances of his life were not to be read like the tea leaves to reveal the future, but were instead God-given opportunities to evaluate with wisdom. And Paul, for Paul, an open door of ministry in Ephesus was no divine command to obey, but a God-given opportunity to evaluate by wisdom. And he thought it wise to stay in Macedonia. So that's kind of everything we can kind of draw out and, and squeeze out of Paul's future plans. But we continue to get a, a better grasp of God-dependent planning as we start to take apart Paul's disclosure of Timothy's future plans in verse um, 10 and 11. He says, now if Timothy comes, see, see that he is with you without cause to be afraid, for he is doing the Lord's work, as also am I. So let no one despise him, but send him on his way in peace so that he may come to me, for I expect him with the brethren. So Paul, just like he spoke of his own plans, spoke about Timothy coming. And uh, we know from Acts 19 that he was traveling with at least one other brother, Erastus. And they went to Macedonia first, but eventually he says he's going to come to you. Timothy, Paul's son in the faith, was going to be his emissary in the Corinthian church at that time. From these words here, we may fairly infer that there, there were some in Corinth who were prideful, who were self-willed, and they might be tempted to treat Timothy poorly. He was young, ger, than Paul. Um, he wasn't Apollos. Verse 12 seems to imply that they wanted Apollos to come, not Timothy. And he wasn't Paul, whom they um, respected in many ways. And it brings, I think, another important principle of God-dependent planning to the foreground, and that is this. Where God commands, we must obey. Where God commands, clearly, we must obey. We are commanded in Scripture to show honor and respect to those who have authority over us. And that includes those who have spiritual authority over us in such a way that it's a, a joy for them, Hebrews 13 says. Uh, we're commanded to let love of the brethren continue and abound. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 5 says, Elders who rule well are to be appreciated and esteemed highly in love for their work. Uh, later on in verse 18 of chapter 16, we're to acknowledge and affirm those who serve Christ with distinction, those who refresh the saints and supply what is needed. So, so as the Corinthians were making their plans for the future, Paul makes it abundantly clear to them they were to treat Timothy like they would treat him, Paul. They were not to give Timothy grief. They were not to put him in fear. They were to treat him kindly. They were to show him respect. They were to show him honor. They were to follow his example as one doing the Lord's work, he says. And wherever Timothy would rendezvous, whenever Paul would rendezvous with Timothy down the road, he expects to hear that they gave, gave, uh, you know, they gave him their best, that they put their best foot forward. And I think that's why he says what he says at the end of verse 11. I, I expect him with the brethren. In other words, he's going to come and tell me what happens. So it almost goes without saying, but, but we need to make it clear, when it does come to God-dependent planning in the future, God expects you and he expects me to obey his 
revealed will. His word. When you're faced with a decision about the future and one of or more of those options would lead you into direct disobedience to his word, then you know that that option is not an option. It's off the table. You can be confident that that is not God's will for your life. But what if God's word doesn't give you a clear-cut black-and-white command? What are we to do in situations like those? And that's where we look, thirdly, at Apollos' future plans in verse 12. What if God's word doesn't give you a clear-cut black-and-white command to follow or, or to um, abstain from? What do we do in that situation? Paul says in verse 12, But concerning Apollos, our brother, I encouraged him greatly to come to you with the brethren, and it was not at all his desire to come now, but he will come when he has opportunity. Apollos was someone that they held in high esteem. We saw in chapter 1, there was a whole faction of people that claimed that he was their guy. And, um, and they, 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 he was a mighty in the scriptures, Acts tells us. He was a, he was a, he was a heavy hitter. He was a guy who was, commanded respect. He was knowledgeable. He was godly, as far as we can tell from the scriptures in every way. And they wanted him to, it, it implies here, that they asked for him to come. And Paul makes clear that that was fine with him. In fact, he says, I strongly urged Apollos to go with the brethren. In no way was Paul trying to keep Apollos back. He wasn't playing games like, oh, you know, you don't like me as much as Apollos, so I'm not going to send him. No, he said, I, I encouraged him strongly to go like you asked. But he says at the same time, Apollos was not jumping at the first opportunity. He wasn't interested. It doesn't mean that he wasn't, uh, it doesn't mean that he was completely unwilling Paul says he will come when he has opportunity. It could be because he was unable, or it could be because Apollos didn't think the time was right for him to pay a visit. And I think that second one is really what's in view there. The point is, there was no black and white biblical command here. There's no like, oh, you must do this, and you must not do that. Now, if Apollos was trying to read Providence, he could have said, oh, wow, they asked me to come. And now I'm talking to you, and you're telling me to go. That must mean God wants me to go. And then made his decision that way. But we just learned that that's not how God communicates his, his sovereign will. So, so how does God-dependent planning approach a situation like this? You know, where, the, where, the, where God commands, we must obey. We just saw that in verses 10 and 11. Where there's no command, though, here's the principle. God gives us freedom and wisdom to choose. God gives us freedom and wisdom to choose. So when we're faced with two or more options that are permissible within God's will, God's revealed will, his word, we need to understand that God is going to be equally pleased with either option. Right? Some men, to Romans 14, choose to eat meat and to follow um, and to do away with the prescriptions of dietary restrictions under the law. He says another man chooses to not eat meat and to remain uh, under the law in those ways by their own choice. And Paul's point is God is not more pleased with the one who eats or the one who doesn't eat, the one who observes one day over another and one who views all days the same. It doesn't matter. God doesn't view one as better than the other. In the Garden of Eden, God said, any of the trees of the garden you may eat freely, 
right? Accept the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. From that, that was God's revealed will, you are not to touch. As long as they didn't eat from that one tree, God was pleased. They could eat whatever they wanted, and one tree wasn't better than the other. You can buy a Honda or you can buy a Chevy. All right, it doesn't matter to God. Right, you can go after church, you can go to Chick-fil-A, or you can go to Raising Cain. It doesn't matter to God. Just kidding. You got to go to Chick-fil-A. All good Christians go to Chick-fil-A. <laughs> whoa, 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 easy. No, God doesn't disclose what his will is, nor are we commanded to search that out. You have freedom to choose. You have freedom in Christ to choose. But alongside that freedom, God also gives us not only freedom, but wisdom. Skill for godly living to recognize which option might be the most profitable. What be, might be the most profitable spiritually and practically. Ecclesiastes 10 and verse 10, if the axe is dull, Solomon says, and he does not sharpen its edge, then he, the person using it, must exert more strength. You have to work harder. But he says wisdom has the advantage of giving success. Work smarter, not harder. So the Old Testament, as we learned in equipping hour, teaches wise decision-making, and we look to the wisdom books like Proverbs and Job and Ecclesiastes, to, to discern what would be the most profitable in that situation. Matthew 10, verse 16, God, Jesus says, Behold, I send to his disciples, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. God commands his disciples to be wise, to pursue wisdom, shrewdness in a good way. And that's what we see Apollos doing here with respect to his decision to not go to Corinth at that time. I think about what Paul said in chapter 10 in verse 23. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are permissible, but not all things edify. And for whatever reason, and Paul doesn't tell us, Apollos decided it was unwise for him to go to Corinth at that time with those brethren. He looked at his options, evaluated the situation with wisdom, and made his plans accordingly what he thought would be best. And that leads into a final kind of concluding principle, is that when we have chosen what is moral, meaning what's in conformity with God's word, and wise, we must trust our sovereign God to work all the details together for good. When we've chosen what is moral, what God's word allows, permissible, and if it doesn't matter what is wise, we must then trust our sovereign God to work those details together for good. Paul said, you should go. You should go to Corinth. And Apollos deemed it wise not to go. But here's the thing. When he made his choice, God worked out the whole situation for their good and God's glory. This is Romans 8 and verse 28. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Paul used the individual decisions to shape Paul, that, you know, he used them to shape, uh, excuse me, God used these individual decisions to shape Paul's ministry, to shape Timothy's ministry, to shape Apollos' ministry, and it shaped the Corinthian church because the things that transpire after 1 Corinthians is written and delivered, we, we see how God used all that 
And as we have the benefit of looking in the rearview mirror with the clarity of hindsight, we see how this letter led to Paul's subsequent visit, which prompted him to write a painful letter, which caused a lot of hurt and discomfort. And then Paul chose to write 2 Corinthians to instruct and edify that church. And here we are, benefited and blessed some 2,000 years later, as we have Paul's words for our benefit and our understanding. Would Paul or Timothy or Apollos or you or me, would we have chosen to plan it all out the way it actually unfolded here? Probably not. I seriously doubt Paul would have done that. And as we know from Acts and then from 2 Corinthians, all that Paul planned here, it didn't go this way. It's not how it went. And, uh, and that's okay. That's the wisdom of our sovereign God. I've said this before. It bears repeating. We do not know what the future holds, but we know the one who holds the future. That's the reality. We only can know what we can know from his word, but we know and can trust in the one who holds the future. And I pray that every person here this morning knows, genuinely knows the one true and living God. That's that's the beginning of wisdom. The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. John 17 verse 3 says, To know God is indeed the essence of life eternal, that they may know the Father and Jesus Christ, whom the Father sent. He sent him to live. He sent him to die in the place of sinners. He sent him to rise victorious from the grave, having triumphed over sin and death and hell. And to all who receive Christ, as Lord and Savior, by faith and not by works. He grants his pardon. He grants his presence. He grants his power and wisdom through his spirit to live for him. Not a bad deal. All of our, all of our sin in exchange for all of Christ's righteousness. I guess that's why they call it good news. But as we come to think about planning for the future, God-dependent planning for the future, we don't, we don't need to read the tea leaves. We don't need to worry. We don't need to be paralyzed. God has given us his word, and where his word is kind of agnostic, where there is no command, he's given us wisdom. Beyond that, and I didn't get into that this morning, he's given us one another. Proverbs commends counsel in making decisions, godly counsel in making decisions. God has given us um, the ability to, to search and understand the world and to make informed decisions, do research, I guess, and think about things in a, in a reasonable way. So there's so many opportunities, but it all begins. God's will, God's wisdom, it all begins with a, a heart to fear him and to know him and to love him. And that, of course, can only be possible through our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we think about our sovereign God and searching out the future, may we look to the example of Paul as he speaks about his future plans, Timothy's future plans, Apollos' future plans. And we took it all apart, and we can now we can see how it works. I remember when I was sick with COVID back in summertime, I listened to an audio book about um, this couple that were involved. In, they were basically the kind of founders of modern-day cryptography. And the... Uh, their team during World War II basically uh, reverse-engineered the, the Enigma machine. 
that the uh, Germans were using to encode their transmissions. They literally uh, basically worked backwards and built the machine so that they could figure out how to crack it. And uh, just a fascinating story if you ever get a chance to, to read it. But all to say, that's kind of what we're trying to do with God's word this morning. We're trying to, trying to back into it. And now we understand why Paul says what he says, maybe a little bit better. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your, for your word. Thank you for even simple things like travel plans and greetings and benedictions and all this stuff. Because in a, in a sense, all of it helps us better understand you, understand your will and your ways. And... Um, you know, we, we, we certainly, if, if we were left to our own devices, we, we, would, we would make such a mess of things. But you have, you've given us your word and you've given us the spirit to take that word and rightly understand it and rightly apply it. And I ask, Lord, that you would give us that wisdom, that we would walk wisely, that you would fear you and trust you above all, and know that you're, you are good and you do good. Uh, Lord, be with us uh, even this week, and as we look to um, as we look to uh, minister one to another this morning, and then beyond this morning into the rest of uh, the rest of this month. We pray that you would give us a sense of uh, trust in you, dependence, and we will walk worthy of our calling. We ask this in Christ's name, Amen. Thank you for listening. We hope you've been encouraged by today's message. For more information or more messages like this. Visit us at CascadesBibleChurch.com or subscribe via your favorite podcast app.